0: There is another preacher. His name is Vodibakum. He has once said that the Book of Revelation is one of the books that most people want to hear preached, and it's simultaneously one of the books that the preachers they don't <laughs> they don't wear away from it. But uh, it might come later on the <laughs> priority list. Uh, I think the main reason is, in a sense, because in the Old Testament we see a bunch of quotes and references back to the Old Testament and also other places in the New Testament. So it's not a standalone book that you can just read through and say, like, oh, and I get it. Because John is culminating everything what the Bible has already said. So you need to have a grasp on what's come before to understand the full meaning of this final book in the Bible. So it's let us not view this book unfavorably just because it's a little cryptic. So let's, uh, let's know this book as well and know him who is addressed in the book. Revelation as a book opens up in chapter 1 as "...the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John." Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimonies of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud, aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So let's look into our text. As um, as this chapter one opened, and as we read, we'll read in as we read in chapter five, we heard. Uh, God speaks to us about what John saw and heard. In chapter 5, it is as if we see this recording of what John sees. He is, in chapter 4 prior, taken, taken up into heaven on the Lord's day, as we are here on the Lord's day. And he sees this scene of this throne in, this, in the heavenly court. And on this throne is one sitting on it, whom is God. And, um, and it says that at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne run in heaven, which, with one seated on the throne. And in chapter 4, it focuses on the, the grandeur, the otherness, the, the wonderful awesomeness of the throne and the one sitting on it. And as the narrative continues in chapter 5, we will see that the focus of this recording changes from the throne and the one who sits sits on it to what he holds in his hand. So this was what this sermon will be about, the the scroll and who is worthy to open it. So I've called the title, the title is Worship Jesus, the One Who is Worthy. Worship Jesus, uh, sorry, the Lamb Who is Worthy. And please catch this in the title. It's not a the worship of Jesus. It's not a description, oh, we're going to see how the worship is. But it's uh, imperative, it's a command. It's worship Jesus, worship him. And I hope and I pray that after seeing this, you might go home worshiping our Lord and Savior. As Ma- Matthew Henry, a uh, faithful old commentary, says in his commentary, as a comment to the whole of the chapter 5. He says, in the foregoing chapter, chapter 4, and the, the prophetical scene was opened in the sight and hearing of the apostle, and he had a sight of God the creator and ruler of the world and the great king of the church. He saw God on the throne of glory and government, surrounded with his holy ones, and received their adoration. Now the cons- counsels and decrees of God are set before the apostle as in a book, or the scroll which God held in his right hand and this book is represented as sealed in the hand of God and taken into the hand of Christ the Redeemer to be unsealed and opened so this is what we'll look at today and as I was reading it I I was seeing this theme of the unworthiness of everybody Uh, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to say, as Mordecai Bakum said, he says that there's everybody and there's everybody. <laughs> so everybody was unworthy, and John weeps. There's a despair in the opening of the of this chapter, because no one is found worthy to take the scroll from God's hand, and open it, open the seals. And uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced. A great sorrow in your life, uh, um, depths of despair. I think John was in that when he was in the throne room at the beginning, but later in the chapter, as we'll see, there's a great joy. I don't know. And if you can par- if you can parallel your sorrow with joy, we will see the joy that John shows us in the book, but even our own sorrows and joys will pale in comparison to what we'll hopefully see in this chapter, so we will look first at who but the Lamb of God is worthy of worship, and secondly at the Lamb of God will be worshipped by his redeemed people. So my first point is comprising of verses one to seven who but the Lamb of God? Is worthy of worship. Who but the Lamb of God is worthy of worship? And I read from chapter 5, verse 1 again. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or, or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But then, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. So... The one who's sitting on the throne has this scroll in his hands. And as verse 3 says, that no one can open this scroll. It's God's scroll, it's sealed. And we'll get back into these seals, but there's no one who can open the scroll. And John weeps. But what is this scroll? Written within and on without, almost said on the inside and the outside of it this was not a normal practice to write on both sides of the parchment because the inside was more finer and the outside was coarser to protect it and then you wrote what you wanted to write on the scroll you rolled it together, you strung it a cord or a, um, a cord or something around it and you sealed the knots that you tied so you'd Roll it, tie it up, knot it together, and seal all of those knots to make sure that it was sealed and that no one had opened it. And in this, sometimes it would be you write something and then you seal a portion. You write something more and you seal this. But this scroll is written all out, rolled up, and sealed with these seven seals. And as a commentary one called Barclay puts it, it's God's will his final settlement of the affairs of the universe. So there are many different ideas of what it can actually be. Some have, like, I'll not go into it because I think it's confusing. Because we don't know, ultimately. We know that it is the culmination of history and God's plan. So let's stick with that for now. Because the point of the text is not what is written within the scroll, but who holds it and who receives it. I found in my studies fascinating that both in Roman and Jewish culture there is a practice of scroll binding, if, if we could call it that, of writing wills or writs of possession or property and sealing of those. And in both instances those seals would be placed on the scroll and only at the right circumstances the right people with the right credentials could open the scroll. So you needed to meet criterias to open the scroll. Not everybody could open them. In Roman custom, you had to have seven witnesses to place a seal each to give the content of the scroll validity. Seven seals had to be made by seven witnesses, so it was a big deal. And in Jewish culture or custom, you would usually write down Say uh, specifically, if a Jewish family lost something, either through poverty or some other means, they would write down what was lost: piece of land, piece of flock, or when they went to the depth, for example. And they would write this on the scroll, roll it up, seal it, and on the outside, it would be written what, need, what criterias needs to be made to open it? And when those criteria were made, then they could open up the scroll and receive the content of it written therein, their land, for example. So there were, there were priorities, criteria needed to be met to open the scroll. And this is the context of verse two, when this angel bellows out, "Who is worthy?" He's calling out, "Who can open this scroll? Who can break open the seals?" And the text says, no one, no one could open it up. There's no one who comes up to face the challenge. And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. And understandably so, John wept, and I would have wept too if I were him in that place, seeing that history would stop. God's plan would not be fulfilled because it could not be opened and delivered and acted upon. No one in creation was found worthy to open the the scroll of the destiny of the world And remember at the beginning when I asked you to picture something incredibly sorrowful. I think that this sorrow is so much greater than anything that compares to it, a trifling thing. And if the text stopped there, if that was the content content of Revelation, everything up till then, and no one was found worthy, the end. Then we would rightly have to fall on our faces and weep with John, because that would be it. There wouldn't be anything more than that. But, as verse 5 says, one of the elders said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the seals and open the scroll. So John hears this comfort of this elder. Which we'll get back to, looks up and sees, and you would think a lion. But what he sees coming from within the throne, a lamb. This lamb came out, and it's a lamb as if slain. And this lamb came to the, to the Ancient of Days, to the Father on the throne, and the Father gave the, the scroll to this lamb. So there was one who was worthy to take it. And I can just picture John being baffled. It's like, okay, there's no one worthy, but then there's Lion, who's a lamb, comes up to the throne, and he receives it? Who is this lamb? And feel this tension for a little moment. This angel has bellowed out to all of creation, saying, there's no one worthy! Come and open it if you can! And no one steps up. And there's probably total silence Well, everybody's like looking is anyone no no oh and you hear john weeping and then you hear this like this lamb coming up i'm not gonna make noises or anything <laughs> but he comes up to the throne and he gets the scroll who is this figure a lion a lamb as matt introduced to us revelation is apocalyptic writing where it's rich and vivid in imagery, and you're not supposed to dissect all the pictures necessarily, but see what they mean and see what they point to. Because you have this, you say, they say, it's a lion, and then the next thing you, you know, it's a lamb, and it's standing, it's alive, but it's as if slain. It's not as if it has been slain, like, oh, it could have been, but it, is, it has been slain, yet it's still standing. And this is, the, this is the Christ we see later. And the point is not to make this half line half-lamb character that is limping but alive. It's the picture, and all of it is Christ. So it's meant to show all these big ideas. And you're supposed to, in your mind, sort of, okay, everything is this, Christ. He's both the Lion of Judah, and he's the Lamb and he was slain but he's still alive he's he's called the line of the tribe of judah the root of david these are messianic titles from both the old and the new testament this is jesus he is the messiah of the jews and of the gentiles jesus says later in revelation 22 that he is this so he says about himself i am the root of David, even the, uh, I am the, sh- what? he is the root of David, and he is the offshoot of David, he is the root of Jesse, David's father, he is the root of what becomes Jesse, but it's only also in the line of Jesse, so he's born into the world, but he's before Jesse, he is before David, he is before the creation itself, so he's outside of creation, stepping into creation. And so no one of creation was worthy to open the scroll, but he who is from before the world, he was worthy because he is God. In Isaiah 11, this shoot from Jesse, this new branch that comes from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11 he shall stand as a signal for the peoples, and later he will raise a signal for the nations, and he will assemble the banished of Israel. The Apostle Paul quotes this portion here in Isaiah twelve, later in Romans fifteen, twelve, speaking of and comments that Jesus is the Gentiles' hope, that he will be the signal that the Gentiles and all the world can come to. Their hope for salvation. And, um, and then there's this, after this lion picture, who's very fitting, strong, majestic, he's mighty, the king of beasts, comes this lamb, standing, yet having the marks of being slain. Some say even dripping. We not exactly know, but it's not as if it has been slain and then healed, it's, the picture says it's standing as slain. It is slain, but it's standing. Um, and the picture of the lamb, I think, is wonderful. It's meek, it's mild, it's humble, and it's been sacrificed in our place for us. The one who was sacrificed for us is alive, and he is worthy to open the scroll. And I think the wonderful thing about his sacrificial mark, they would slay, they would cut the throat, and it is continually showing forth his sacrifice. It's not forgotten, it's not grown over will rule, so you cannot any longer see it. But he's standing and you can see that it has been slain, showing his sacrifice to the to the Father continually. And he is the Godman. But this is not only a meek and my little lamb like oh, even though the text actually hints to it's so a it's a little lamb the text says um in the original languages it's not just a lamb it's a little lamb, oh, it's a little tiny thing but as we read in the text it has seven horns and it has seven eyes just to make it the picture even more messed up these horns in the bible are often used to imply or show power. And the eyes are to show wisdom. And many times in the Bible, not all, but many, seven is the number for completion or divinity. So he is the complete power. He has complete wisdom and knowledge of everything. And this then turns into this powerful figure. He is lion, yes. He's lamb, yes. But he has all power and all knowledge and he is worthy to take the scroll as John the Baptist in John 1 says behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so in our text he has now done that which we will later in our series in John come to but he has done this in our setting in this chapter and as in Zechariah 410 it says for behold on the stone that i've set it before joshua on a single stone with seven eyes i will engrave its inscription declares the lord of hosts and i will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day again as i opened now think back to a time of joy unparalleled the apostle peter says that we were ransomed by the blood of the lamb this Christ, who is the unblemished land without well, spot, this is indeed the grounds of our salvation. And because of that, joy untold. And we cannot even start to imagine how wonderful it actually is. And I think we will have to wait until the day Jesus comes back to see the fullness of this joy. This, we are saved from our sins by this wonderful lamp, who is our creator and savior. So, to conclude the first point, no one created can open the scroll and unleash the scroll and what is in it and consume the plan of God for the world. But Jesus, the Lion Lamb, Messiah, he can, and he has done it. So, my brothers and sisters, our eternal state is redeemed by the blood of this lamb, He was sacrificed in us dead, and by so doing has conquered. And in doing so, conquering, he is worthy, as we will see. He is worthy to receive worship. He is worthy. He had the right credentials to open the seals. The one who sits on the throne gives the scroll to his hand, and now it's the pleasure and the job of every living creature on earth and under earth and in heaven to worship him. And this is what we will look in, in our second point, that he is worthy of this praise. So going to, to our text in verse 8. And when he had taken the, the scroll, the Lamb, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And now, who on earth, or well, heaven, are these four living creatures and 24 elders. They're not the focus of our text, but just to, to scratch the itch and to show that it has some meaning, I'm going to give a little time here to talk about them. Um, they're mentioned several times in Revelation, and s- similar creatures are mentioned throughout the Old Testament in, um, and as well in the Bible. And in chapter 4, the prior chapter, there's a short description of them, which I will read, starting in chapter 4, verse 6. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second creature, like an ox, the third living creature, with the face of a human, and the fourth living creature, with an eagle, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And throughout the Bible and throughout Revelation, they are actually described as not just pictures, but as beings, these <laughs> honestly a little weird-looking creatures. One has an ox, as a head, one has a human, one has a lion, and one has an eagle. And they have six wings. Two they cover themselves with, two cover their feet, and two keep themselves flying. And they have eyes all over. They're watching creation, and they are saying, holy, holy, holy is God. In, in writing in Old and New Testament, they wouldn't use exclam- exclamation points. They would just say it repeatedly and two times it's like mm, this is real important like behold behold or truly truly or jesus is amen amen but here the creatures do not say just holy holy they say holy 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 just to drive it through people's mind They're like this is you can't even imagine how holy is but he is <laughs> so <laughs> and this is their job they're designed, or I, don't, I want to say, that, maybe choose my words. They're created to be worshipers. They stand around the throne of God, and they're, at, they, they're always around the throne of God, saying, holy, 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 as the chapter says. And they're involved in some way with God's justice, and it's they who send out the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are the four, the four seals of the scroll that Jesus will open. And it's the, the the four creatures who send them out. They say, come! And they come, and they go, and they're sent to do God's will. This is not the focus of our text, but they are pretty big deal. Like, they're in front of God proclaiming holy, and they're worshipping. And these four beings, along with the 24 elders, whether these 24 ones are angelic beings or glorified human beings, they Anyway, they represent God's full people, the church. Some say that they are 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. They, are a representative, well, they're, they represent the full church of God through history. And they're worshiping the Lamb. And now, as we read, it is not John who's falling down on the floor weeping. It's these four and these 24 who fall down on their face worshiping. And these, and these four and these 24 have these balls, golden balls with incense. And as we read, they are, uh, which are the prayers of the saints. So the saints' prayers are gathered up in heaven, if you will, in this picture language. And these four living creatures and the 24 elders carry these balls with prayers to the Lamb, showing it to him to whom the saints direct their prayers. And some one commentary said that it's all the all that the prophets ever prophesied and believers ever prayed for, all about to come to pass. And this is not to confuse with what Catholics believe that we can pray to these twenty-four, like they pray to the saints and pray that these saints will give the prayers to Jesus again, but there's is prayers to God, and the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders are some somehow involved in giving those prayers to Jesus. But there's only one mediator. It's not these four and twenty-four. They're just the uh, the factory belt giving it to him. As in First Timothy two five says, "There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the Christ, the man Christ Jesus." And something stunning here, see how precious the saints' prayers are to God. They're offered up as incense in these golden bowls. They're this pleasant aroma being given to the Lamb. In Psalm 141, verse 2, we can read, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Pray, brothers and sisters, because your prayers are like incense before the throne of God. Our weak prayers our st- strong prayers, whatever that is, but our genuine prayers that come from the heart. They are a prayer to God as incense, not the prayer, can I get a car next week, but your will be done. And all of our meekly, mildly prayers, they are incense to the most glorious and high God. So pray with, I don't want to say courage, but strong conviction and belief that you are heard and God himself values your prayers. Just a few scripture readings from the Old Testament here. I'll just go through them quickly. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord... Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to God better than the fat of rams. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than the burnt sacrifice. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And finally, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, it's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So in this, we see that the sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord are the prayers of the saints, their listening to him, their love for one another, and all of this culminates as incense before the throne room and before the Lamb. Now, going back to our text, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And they sang this new song. One commentary said that it's a new thing that the Son of God should become man. It's a new thing to ascend into the heavens with a body. It is a new thing to give remissions of sins to men. It is a new thing for men to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is a new thing to receive the priesthood of sacred sacred observance and to look for a kingdom of un- unbounded promise. This song, this new song that we we're singing is, You are worthy. In the Apostle Paul, John's time, Roman emperors were often welcomed into a city with the words, You are worthy, or in that time, Veridignus in Latin. So it's, this means truly worthy, or truly fitting, or it is right, And giving that to the emperor. You are right. You're fitting. You're worthy to come into his city. And I can picture this great city lined with people and with soldiers and officials. And the herald would be looking out for the emperor coming in. And he would say, he's here. And the officials and the soldiers would probably start chanting, he's worthy. He's worthy. And the people would join in this majestic chorus saying, you're worthy. He's coming. And here in our text, the true king and ruler is honored. As I mentioned, Psalm 141 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The elders worshipped the Lamb as they had just worshipped God the Father on the throne in chapter 4. I don't know if we catch this, but it's unheard of. It's blasphemous to the nth degree to worship anything but God. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they knew that. They knew it's blasphemous to worship anything but God. And yet they worshiped him. They knew that this lion of Judah, this lamb, this shoot and root of David, this messiah he was the son of god jesus he was god so he was worthy of not only the scroll but of their praise their worship so let's join them in worshiping the lamb this morning and the rest of our lives until we get to the throne room or until the throne room comes here or whatever (laughs) comes first in our lives if we die and go to him or if he comes to us before we die And the 4 and the four, 24 sing that the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Echoing back to our Old Testament scripture for today. And they sang, for you were slain, and by doing that ransomed people for God. As Peter says in Second Peter 2, Jesus is the master who bought free the people and later in Revelation 14, we hear, These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. And as I studied for this sermon, I found this commentary on the song that I just want to give you and then comment on it. The song honors the price of redemption, for you were slain. The song honors the worker of redemption, you have redeemed us. The song honors the destination of redemption. You have redeemed us to God. The song honors the payment of redemption by your blood. The song honors the scope of redemption, bringing in every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The song honors the length of redemption. They have made us kings and priests to our God. And the song honors the result of redemption. And we shall reign on the earth it was costly to redeem us Christ had to die to do it and pay with his blood but in so doing he did redeem us to God with the payment of his blood and because of this we have now a new glorious family consisting of every tribe every tongue and every nation because we are bought into the same family by the master who bought us by his sacrifice he has made us a kingdom and priests to God, and we shall reign on earth with him. God will make all things new, and we will reign with him. We will be kings and priests to him. In Exodus nineteen, Exodus nineteen, five to six, God says to the people of Israel that if they they hear uh, I misspelled here, so if they hear, if they hear his voice and a basis, his covenant, they shall be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this in Exodus has now been fulfilled in Revelation, and Peter in First Peter two five and nine says that this promise is also for the church. And here in our text we see the fulfilment of it. Verse eleven. be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Then countless angels joined in, declaring the worthiness of the Lamb. They credit power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing to the Lamb. Let us do the same thing. This is what is showed for us here in this text that we ought to worship the Lamb in this way. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is us. So now in closing, let's go back to this Roman emperor coming in who is greeted. I said that the officials and the soldiers probably shouted and got the peoples to say he's worthy veridigmus but now we can say it to the ultimate king the lamb of god saying with the elders and the heavenly beings veridigmus you're worthy and this will not just be one city welcoming its ruler it will be as it says and i heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them. We cannot even imagine the thunder mm-hmm. of the voices that will cry out, you're worthy. It will be like hundreds of thousands, times hundreds and thousands, times hundreds of thousands, again and again, shouting, praising, worshipping the Lord. You are worthy with shouts of immeasurable joy and thankfulness. So, friends, he is worthy. Why? As with our Lord, when he walked this earth, as our Old Testament in Isaiah 53 showed us, Jesus was despised and rejected, not esteemed. Yet he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God, and for our trespasses he was crushed. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord laid upon Jesus the iniquities, the guilt of sin, from his people upon him. Like a lamb led to slaughter, he did not turn aside, but bore it faithfully. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, as the text said. By his knowledge shall he make many to be accounted righteous, as he makes intercession for transgressors. We are accounted as righteous because of the the lamb's sacrifice. So depend on this, friends. Our eternal state is redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Who can then be against us? Worship him, rejoice, and give glory to Jesus, who died for you and bought you for himself. And to end with John's final words in the final chapter of the final book, amen come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.